With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 112, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, right at the start of this week's show... I do have to apologise. I've been somewhere rather unpleasant before I came in here today. He's he's just had a filling, so he might be going later on as the numbness wars off. I drove here straight from the dentist. So if I sound a bit slurry, I'm not drunk, I promise. Have you ever had Novocaine before? Yeah, and it's just really like, you feel like you've been punched in the mouth once it was off. Oh, well, I look forward to that in about yeah. half an hour then. <laughs> so, Ravi's got the displeasure of watching drool dib- dribble down my chin for the next hour or so. Uh, but hopefully that'll wear off soon. I don't sound too slurry on this week's show. That was a wise choice, wasn't it, going there before yeah. I came here? <laughs> but we have got a really good show today. I'm not going to do the majority of the talking because today we're going to be talking about one of the most iconic computers of all time from Britain that is getting a reinvention for the 21st century. Today's show, we're going to talk about the ZX Spectrum next. You know, the, the Spectrum, it, it, it reeks of the 80s for me. It's like Clive Sinclair, you know, that kind of small enterprise projects and all of that stuff. It was very about Britain and their kind of innovation. And the Spectrum shouldn't have been popular, should it? It was, it was a, a, I'd probably get killed for Don't saying Don't tell that. our guests that this week, yeah. right? <laughs> but you know, it had all things against it. It was a small machine, it had a low memory, but people used it and they created absolutely amazing things on it, you know, and it continued for, for so long. And this is a continuation of that now. Well, the original Spectrum was affordable. That's why people bought it, I think. Yeah. Because, you know, that was one it's of the during first... during a recession, wasn't it? Yeah, so. the early 80s. You know, minor strike era and all that, wasn't it? So that was kind of one of the first machines that people could afford to own at home. And it spawned an absolute revolution. I mean, we often get messages of people saying they listen to our show to get this kind of unique British perspective because I know there was kind of clones of the spectrum around the world. Yeah, there was a strange Russian ones, wasn't there, and the uh, Timex ones in America as yeah. well. But it didn't have the same kind of cultural influence that it did over here in the UK. I mean, in the 80s, it was a phenomenon over here. And I even remember into the 90s, I remember stuff like, you know, when Alan Sugar obviously bought out Sinclair. Yeah, I, I first spectrum I saw was in like late 90s at my mate's house he was still rocking it and playing Escape <laughs> to Colditch you know I remember, well, it, there was some like tape decks built in and like you know micro drives and all that kind of yeah. stuff so it was you know such a big machine here and this machine we're talking about today the ZX Spectrum Next is a continuation of the original hardware with some really cool new specs and we've actually got a team of guys together who we had on stage at Play Expo in Blackpool last month um, in typical retro style we didn't record that panel and I don't think <laughs> anyone else did but that's all right because we managed to get them all together again to come on the show and we've actually got a few more questions it's going to be a bit longer than like the 40 minute one yeah because this there. one's a bit more updated because we're actually getting really close to release now yeah i mean kickstart backers have already got it but it is kind of coming out for sale on the website this month now we've got jim bagley who i think he's kind of established himself as like mr spectrum now hasn't he yeah you couldn't you couldn't do a new development without jim bagley he's the guy that did you know Oh, what was it? Dragon's Lair on the ZX Spectrum. He's, Wait, he's put some, it on this, yeah. Yeah, amazing screaming. feats of uh, programming. And obviously he's got a big history with the Spectrum. I mean, after Clive Sinclair, 
Jim Bagley's your next guy, isn't he? <laughs> if you're talking about the Spectrum. And we've got Mike Daly, their DMA design fame. L- he's legendary got, company. Absolutely. And he's got a long history with the Specky. And he's actually managed to get Lemmings working on the ZX Spectrum next, pretty much up to Amiga quality. Oh, wow. So we'll talk to him about that. And he's doing like a series of programming tutorials about it as well. And if we're talking about legendary Spectrum games, what's the biggest one? Oh, Dizzy. Of course, for me, uh, publicly, you know, I'd go see the exhibition of Dizzy at the National Video Game Arcade. Every single person that I've seen at events have run it with Dizzy cassettes and everything. And even the Oliver Twins were on Go 8-Bit the other day. Did you see that, Dan? No, I didn't actually. I haven't seen anything. They were using their heads as controllers, (laughs) which is quite funny. Well, we're definitely asking them about that today. Playing quick snacks, Dizzy. (laughs) Well, they're actually making a new Dizzy called um, Wonderful Dizzy. We saw a little preview of that at Play Expo. And that looks incredible. And I think it's going to be an exclusive on the next, if I'm not mistaken. They're releasing it essentially at like, you know, they're giving all the money to charity or for free if you want to download it. So we're going to talk a bit about this new spectrum, how it kind of relates to the past, what it's going to bring into the 21st century, why these guys that were in it originally are that excited and fueled up about it. Mm. And you know, exactly what it's going to bring to the Spectrum community, really. So if you've got any interest in the Spectrum, past, present or future, this is one not to miss. We're going to have our big ZX Spectrum Next panel on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, before we get into that, you've been chatting to quite a few of our listeners this week. Yeah, I have. Um, I've started a service. It's called Discord, which is a... You didn't start Discord. No, no. <laughs> I started a server on Discord, which is a, a kind of gaming chat service. Yeah. And Amigos Podcast actually has one for patrons. So I was like, oh, that's a good idea. But let's make it public for everybody. So we've got little sections on there. You know, you can do voice chat if you want to come on and play some games. We've also got, like, different introductions, related servers as well. But the coolest thing we're going to be doing is an IRC bridge. So at some point, I'm hoping next week, we're going to be able to connect with your old Amiga 4000 or any of your old (laughs) machines and kind of be in this chat channel with us all. But for now, I mean, I I looked at we've used Discord a little bit. Um, Yeah, I think the first time we used it was the interview we did a couple of weeks ago with the uh, Bitmap Bureau guys. And it is kind of, I mean, you mentioned the voice chat and all that there as well, but you can just use it as like an IRC kind of web service. Yeah, and it's also kind of used like a forum as well because you'd have different categories. Like we've got an introductions one and people are putting in all their lovely stories about how they started listening to the podcast and stuff. You can get it on your phone, on the web, everywhere. We've got a a suggestions area. People have been talking about people that like to hear on the show. Yeah, Uh, We've got um, general discussion in there as well, I've seen modern gaming section there's all sorts little dj section yeah yeah you can pick tunes and kind of play retro music we we had a good stock aching and waterman mix on the other day <laughs> bit of sonia yeah <laughs> but it's it sounds a bit like you know yahoo chat used to be in some ways then i guess yeah like, yeah it's, it's it's really mad but um it's kind of multifunctional, so you can do lots of these different things and decide how you want to use it and it'd be great to have more people join us yeah. Well, considering we haven't really promoted it much, we've got about 50 in there already. Yeah. So if you want to join us, um, it's dead easy. I mean, there are, like, like Ravi said, there are desktop apps you can download, you can get it on your phone, or just use a web interface. You can go on yeah. that way too. So if you go to theretrohour.com, we will have an invite there, and you just accept our invitation, which is permanently there, and you'll be on the server. More ways to distract us from doing our work all day. Yeah. That's what we need. <laughs> and speaking of theretrohour.com, that is also the place where you can go to support this show. Now, if you listen week in, week out, and you like what we do, and you want us to continue doing it, obviously we appreciate any help that we can get with that. Because, you know, coming in doing a weekly podcast, not many of them are around. Yep. And we need to do server hosting costs, you know, SoundCloud subscriptions. It all adds up and get to events and that kind of thing too. So if you'd like to make a little donation into the running of the show, it is completely optional, but we appreciate 
appreciate every penny, every pound, every euro, every dollar, every cent, and you will find your place in the Hall of Fame for making a donation. Now, this week, we want to say a huge thank you to Stephen Quinn. Rafe Hoffmans. David Holt. Patrick McGinty and Stuart Cousins who all made donations into the running of the show thank you so much really means a lot to us and you can do the same and get a mention on a future episode of the podcast by heading to our website theretrohour.com now one of our favourite guests who was actually very early on I think we had him in like one of our first five episodes maybe and recently we met him again at Play Expo was Mr Biffo Oh, yes, Mr. Biffo, the guy from Digitizer and the original kind of teletext, which, you know, he was a bit of a rebel reporter. Everyone else was in established magazines and he was just on teletext going mental. Well, he used to do a daily magazine on teletext in the late 80s, right through the early 2000s, actually, wasn't it? And it had a really kind of edgy sense of humour. It got was, away it with was a lot. very strange. And he's got a new series which has been going on at the moment. And he told us about it at... Um, play and I kind of said I haven't seen it which is just awful I've gone and sat down and watched it and it's one of the funniest weirdest things I've seen it's it's like he's kind of made up this found footage but he's got people like Violet Berlin in it he's got Ian Lee he's got like Danny Wallace in it all of these great he's got Nam Rood in it oh wow (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah and and they're all kind of talking to this new character who is a Goujon John who is kind of uh, he's the equivalent of, you know, Patrick Moore. <laughs> well, you've got little, you've sent me a little clip here. So. Well, well, this is for his new Kickstarter that's launched today, which is Digitizer the Show. So he's had his found footage, which has gone very well. Yeah. He's now kickstarting for a full web series, which is going to involve, you know, the original YouTubers against some of the old school people like Violet Berlin, you know, Imran Youssef. There's Danny Wallace, the guy who did Liar. Uh, yes, man, not, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, man, yeah, not yeah. Liar. Hollywood movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's just going to be fantastic. So, and it's a total send-up of all of the gaming shows. It's a total, you know, taking a mick out of everything, of course, in a digitizer style Yeah, it wouldn't be him with it if it didn't, would it? No. So this clip here, this is on their Games You Loved, one of our favourite websites, good good friends of ours. And they've got a little page that we'll link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. You can watch kind of all the trailers together and get a link to the Kickstarter, which starts on March the 9th, so the day the show yeah. comes out. So here's a little clip of uh, Gujon John. So, are you tired of YouTubers screaming at you, rubbing their scalps with anime figurines? (laughs) Do you yearn for the days of proper gaming TV shows that you actually cared about? Do you wish there was a retro gaming web series that you could refer to as the greatest thing you ever watched? A show from the fervored mind of a man calling himself Mr. Biffo, knowing that you played a part in getting it made. Well then, prepare prepare yourself, my child, child, for the most (laughs) important important event in retro retro gaming gaming ever. ever. Gird thyself thyself for Digitizer, digitizer, the show. show. Yeah, so as you can see from that editing as well, it's really well done and it's done in that kind of VHS, you know, 90s style. Well, he's even got like uh, Games Master playing in the background of that clip as well, which uh, it kind of gives it that authentic... Retro kind of feels straight away, obviously. Totally. Um, but yeah, that's cool that he's doing this because I love the fact that Paul is now taking what was originally a very basic text format into all these new kind of avenues, like whether it be videos or movies and that kind and of the, thing. And the thing is, the writing is really strong on it as well. You know, you, you kind of have some of these send-ups and you're like, oh, well, yeah. yeah, that's not so good. But this, I was watching the fan footage series and I was on the floor laughing and so was my girlfriend, actually. She's like, this is 
weird stuff. It reminds me of like, you know, Vic and Bob. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or, or kind of Brass Eye. I mean, you can think of the characters he had on Digitized, people like another you know, man with a long chin and Fat Sal and Insincere Dave. He's always been a good character writer. Yeah, definitely. So he kind of brings that into this kind of video format now, I suppose. So uh, the Kickstarter launches today, and is this going to be released then on like physical and online? I, I'm not sure. He says it's a web series, so I okay. assume it's going to come out on YouTube or it may be on a, you know, another platform. It might be on Netflix or something. Who knows? Well, we'll know more, obviously, when the show comes out. So um, we'll put all the information in this week's show notes. If you're a fan of Digitizer, I'd say, you know, you need to support this. Yeah, and just watch the found footage because, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You will be sent to a very surreal place. <laughs> now, speaking of those heady days back in the early 90s, were you a fan of the game Stunt Car Racer? Oh, I love Stunt Car Racer. Uh, with the wheels, right? Go, when it would you take... fire coming out. When, when you basically lose control on one of the ramps, that's yeah. the worst bit, and you've got to try and land it <laughs> at like 45 degrees or something. Yeah, you do. You fly up in the air, don't you, and land down again. Because that was a game that was famous on the Commodore 64. I had it on the Amiga 500. Mm-hmm. That's what I played it on. And it was kind of a an early attempt at 3D as well, in many ways. It was quite advanced for the time. Oh, yeah. It was, it was really revolutionary because, you know, when you had two players as well on it or, yeah. or a system link, you could actually see the other car and you could keep up in time, even though the frame rate was like two frames per second. Or so. I forgot you could do, like, system link. You could, couldn't you? Like, yeah, non-item yeah, yeah, yeah. cable. That was really cool. And it kind of reminded me whenever I played it, even though it was meant to be like a racer game, it was a bit more like a, a roller coaster, really, where the tracks went yeah, up and down. Yeah, and yeah. It was, you know... With the raised sections and the berms and stuff. Yeah, when you saw it yeah. from the side, it did look like a roller coaster. But the physics in that, in that game to run, like, the Commodore 64 and, like, a 7 megahertz Amiga must have been quite a feat of programming for the time. Oh, definitely. And, you know, they'd, they'd even reduce the small screen size in the middle. But now, someone's actually ported this to the Atari 8-bit computers. So you can play this on the Atari XE and the XL. Oh, wow. Um, which, it's kind of been a project that's been ongoing for quite a while now on the Atari Age forum, which is, like, if you're an Atari fan, that is a forum that you've got to go to to find out all the latest Atari news. But it is really cool that they've actually sat down, a team of them have... They're meant to get this out before Christmas, but it's took a little bit longer. But I think this looks really good already now. It's got all the features of the Commodore 64 on there, including improved frame rates. Wow. So it runs quicker. It's got music on there, uh, sound effects. There's even like QR code generation <laughs> for a high score cafe that you can do on their website as well. So got a few mod cons on there. That's insane, though, that they're kind of, you know, doing improvements upon the C64 version. And... This is a right feat of uh, engineering, isn't it? <laughs> and what's more, it's free. Oh. So if you're a fan of the, uh, you know, the Atari 8-bit range and you want to give that a download, uh, we'll put that link to the Atari Edge forum. very impressed with that. Yeah, it looks really good. It makes me want to go out and get an Atari XE now. So we'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, one of our favourite games of last year was uh, Ron Gilbert's new adventure game, yeah, Denver oh, Wee Park. I absolutely love that, yeah. The only problem was, you know... Finding those specks of dust. <laughs> Did you put it on hard mode, obviously? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I played it through. Well, I played it through so many times. I must admit, I kind of copped out in the end and put it on easy mode on the Nintendo oh, Switch no. just to see the yeah. story. No, so I hardcored it. it. Yeah, but I, I, I did it with my girlfriend. So we had two people hardcoring it, which wasn't so bad because we could spot things the other person couldn't. You didn't use a walkthrough? No. <laughs> see, when I play the old adventure games, occasionally I do get stuck and like Google a walkthrough. Is that lame? It is lame, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of had to sit there for two days and just be like, right, I'm, I'm going to complete this no matter what. I've not got the time these days. Though. We just want to get past the next bit of the game. But the story was great. I mean, for anyone that didn't play it, it was kind of a modern version of those old LucasArts adventure games. But also, if you played it in different ways, the storyline would have changed as well. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's had a different experience with Thimbleweed Park. 
Yeah, it was kind of like a your own adventure game, wasn't it? Um, some great characters. I mean, if you remember Monkey Island, like like Lechuk, obviously he was a great character. Ron's got a great mind for writing them. But I think one of my favourite characters in Thimblewee Park had to be Ransom the Clown. Yeah, he really reminded me of Krusty. Yeah. You know, he's kind of got that, bitter, that horrible streak. <laughs> yeah. Well, for people who haven't played the game, tell us a bit about Ransom. Oh, Ransom, he, he was just a horrible, nasty guy, wasn't he? And he he was on this abandoned theme park, from what I remember, and yeah. he'd swear a hell of a lot. Yeah. That was uh, one of the parts of it. Uh, he was he changed the tone of the game to, yeah. to, to, to pretty... Um, Hardcore when it seemed like quite a nice one when you were walking around before doing nice things, you get to ransom. No, it's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> He's insulting all the audience and everything, isn't yeah. he? You know, spo- little spoiler here block your ears if you haven't played the game. He does get a curse on him as well, doesn't he? So, yeah. well deserved as well. But, like you said, I mean, he does swear all throughout the game. But being you know a family friendly game and coming out on platforms like the Nintendo Switch, all of his swearing was beeped out, as you'd expect from like a Ron Gilbert game. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to hear Ransom in all of his glory, <laughs> there is now a DLC pack that you can download. <laughs> Just for £1.69, you can yeah. remove all the beats. You can essentially hear all the F and S words in all their glory. <laughs> <laughs> I've watched the trailer. I can't play it on this show because we are family friendly. Um, but there is. It's called Thimbleweed Park's Ransom Unbeeped DLC. So I will put that with a little warning in this week's show notes if you want to hear it. I'm loving one of the reviews. This is the best beeping DLC I've ever <laughs> beeping purchased. <laughs> I think it's only available for the PC version from what I can see. Yeah, that was the version I played. Yeah, so I, mean, I can't imagine they're going to approve this on the Nintendo Switch store. <laughs> so it's not going to be on there. But it's on GOG.com and Steam. And some people are saying it kind of ru- ruins like, the subtlety of the game a little bit. Other people are saying, yeah, it's hilarious. it makes it even funnier. I mean, for me, I think having the beeps does make it quite amusing. Mm. But then it kind of gives you the choice, I guess. If you want to play it when the kids are out and hear, you know, Ransom getting really carried away, then <laughs> for the sake of £1.69. Oh, yeah, it? it's, it's such a good game, and I hope they have more DLC uh, that, that's a bit more complex than just beeps. Yeah, when I did see there was DLC for it, I must admit I was a bit more excited than what it actually turned out to be. But like I said, the fact is they've set the system up that they can actually do plugins for the game and yeah. extra modes and that kind of thing. So and for that price, I mean, even just to support Ron a bit more and uh, you yeah, know, say how much yeah, you definitely. love the game, worth making a little donation, I think. Now, a system that we don't talk about all that much on this show, but it is very dear to my heart, would be the Commodore Plus 4. Now, that was my first ever computer that I got when I was a kid. Um, bit of an obscure machine. It was compatible with the Commodore 16. They were like Commodore's biggest failures, really, in the 80s. Yeah, I've, I've, I've often seen you go up to people and they go, what was your first machine, Dan? And you go, the plus four. And they go, oh, we're very sorry for you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Always get the sympathy vote with yeah. that. But now there is, if you click on this little link here, there's a new game made for the Commodore Plus Four called Pets Rescue. Oh, cool. Now, this is... It looks really good. It kind of reminds me of like Mayhem in Monsterland on the Commodore 64. Yeah, but it's, it's very much got a, a Mario kind of look with those pipes and the ground and yeah. stuff like that. Graphically, it looks amazing though, especially if you watch it. There's a little video here as well. Now, I haven't played any of the music or anything on it, so we're going to have a little listen. Pretty funky. Nice. Now, bear in mind the Plus 4 didn't have like hardware sprites. Yeah. It didn't have a dedicated sound chip. So looking at this, I mean, it is essentially, like you said, it's a Mario kind of ripoff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the graphics have got that kind of bubbly, you know, like Super Nintendo look almost. And I think this is just an amazing feat for the Commodore 16 and Plus 4, a machine that is generally sneered out a little bit from a lot of retro fans. And like you said, everyone you talk to about it always thinks, oh, you know, yeah, poor well, you for owning one. Well, it's by Cytronic, which uh, a really good company that kind of do modern games on 
yeah. uh, old systems. So they're actually doing quite a few things for the Spectrum Next as well. Yeah, well, looking at the quality of games, I mean, you can tell these guys are pros. Oh, they've and been doing it for years, you know. I remember they were releasing C64 stuff back in the days. So. Well, I think the thing about it is with... These machines now, people have had like 30 years to figure out all the kind of nuances of the hardware and learn tricks and all that. So that's why we're seeing stuff like this now that probably wouldn't have been possible when they were new. But they're actually releasing this as a commercial game as well, which I think is amazing. You know, the fact that we're getting a new Commodore 16 and Plus 4 commercial game in 2018. Yeah, yeah, I think they've been commercial for quite a few years. You know, the advantage of that is getting the packaging and, you know, the manuals and the whole kind of... The whole game experience, really. Well, I've been thinking about it for a while, you know. I need to get my Plus 4 out of the cupboard and get it set up again. So uh, I think I've still got to... it. Your original oh, yeah, my original one. machine's oh, still nice. in mint condition as well. Oh, so, good lad. Uh, and Marvin actually got me a Commodore 16 last year because I did have one of those years ago and I threw it in the bin. Something I always regretted. Now, you need to get that <laughs> out and you need to do a video on like your old games on it and stuff. And yeah, well, yeah. I've, I've done a couple. I did a top 10 list last year top 10 Commodore 16 and plus 4 games I did on YouTube um, but the thing is when you do those lists everyone disagrees yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. what is this game not in there it's like, like this it's my, my list my personal <laughs> list <laughs> you're wrong yeah. but yeah so that, I'll put that in this week's show notes if you want to see a little bit more about the 16 and plus 4 it's not quite as bad as everyone makes out okay. then again I might be slightly biased because it wasn't <laughs> you know my first machine but this game looks cool so if you want to find out more about that maybe give it a buy I'll put that in this week's show notes as well now before we get into this week's Spectrum panel this is quite cool something you spotted a little bit of Apple news. Yeah, so Apple are actually uh, filing a kind of patent and trademark for their old logo. The rainbow logo. The rainbow logo, yeah, which was the really cool one, actually. I always liked the rainbow logo. Now, that uh, was a classic one, wasn't it? It had, like, the stripes on green, yellow, orange, red, violet and blue. Yeah, yeah, that was the one, proper from the 80s. And, you know, this is... Um, they want it embossed on the front of Apple Park Visitor Center. They'll also be selling headgear, hats, and it looks like they're just trying to make a book off the old um, kind of logo, but it's cool to see that they're looking at their roots a bit. Yeah, because Apple don't often do that. Apple are very much a forward-thinking company, and they very rarely reference the past, really, so it's quite good to see them kind of respecting their legacy a bit. And with that logo, I mean, it is iconic. That was the logo that was embossed on the front of the Apple II, for example. Yeah. And whenever you see, you know, pictures of those old Apple machines, that logo really stands out, I think. And then when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1970, he got rid of it and kind of put that, you know, monochrome one that we have today. Yeah. But looking at that logo, you can see why they changed it. I mean, that kind of colour stripe thing was a thing of the 80s that really, you know, showed off that we have colour in our machines, which is quite ironic considering the Mac was black and white, actually, <laughs> thinking about it. But do you remember the original Apple logo? Have you ever seen that one? Uh, no. It's got Sir Isaac Newton on there. Okay. He's sitting under oh, an apple oh tree. With, it, with it falling on his head, yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, and it's got yeah. like the wraparound apple, com- I mean, it was far too complex to use as like a day-to-day logo. So that was why they commissioned this, uh, you know, the one with the, the bite out the apple. It looks like a, something a fantasy guild would have, something like that. Yeah, it'd be a lot of effort to print that on the front of every <laughs> computer, wouldn't it? But it is cool that they're going to be doing that, and because the thing is, about patents, they do expire after a while, don't they, if they don't use them? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I'm sure Apple have got the lawyers to challenge anyone that kind of use it without their permission, but... I think it is really cool that they've actually applied for that again, hopefully. Even just merchandise and stuff, because Apple have always kind of appealed to the hipster kind of community anyway. 
Totally, and I think, you know, they can make more overpriced items and yeah. sell them with this logo, you know. I'd buy an 80-quid Apple II t-shirt with that on. Who am I kidding? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, well, thank you for checking out episode number 112 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next week from all of your favourite podcast clients. Uh, please do keep those reviews coming in on iTunes as well and our Facebook page. Oh, yeah, we can review on that now. Yeah, I enabled that about two weeks ago. Got about three on there at the moment, so <laughs> any of those we get, obviously, that all helps into uh, getting the show in front of more people and gets us up the rankings and all that and get yourself on discord what kind of stuff you've been talking about on discord this week then um there was a massive conversation on beer what what kind of beer we drink uh we had a a huge conversation on synth music as well yeah where everyone was talking about all their favorite synth artists and bands yeah loads of stuff we just talk about everything because it's it's general chat i saw a thing on there about retro sweets and snacks that you have oh yeah So, I mean, if that's your kind of vibe, you know, if you like this show and you want to come and chat to us and the people that listen to the podcast, then we've got a link to our Discord chat room on the front page of theretrohour.com. Right then, are you ready to talk about the ZX Spectrum next? Always. With some of the biggest Spectrum experts in the world, Jim Bagley, Mike Daly and the Oliver Twins are our special guests this week. And we'll catch you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome this week's very special guests. Now, today we're going to be talking about one of the most exciting projects in the world of retro right now, and new hardware as well, because this is a continuation of one of the most legendary 8-bit machines, the Sinclair Spectrum Next. Now, I think we'll uh, get you guys to introduce yourselves. Um, It would be good if you could just give us an introduction. Uh, Maybe tell us a bit about your history with the Spectrum as well and what you've done on that platform. So um, we'll start with you, Jim. Yeah, um, my name's Jim Bagley. I've been in the games industry for about 32 years now. first game I did on the Spectrum was Throne of Fire, which was the Mike Singleton uh, game, which was like no pressure to do that one. Then I went on to do um, it was Streets, Sports Basketball, um, World Class Leaderboard, uh, Cabal, Midnight Resistance. That's my two that I'm most known for on the Spectrum. Hudson Hawk, and I think that was it for the Specky. He did quite a lot, Jim, to be fair. Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> and we have that Mike Daly on the line as well, so um, tell us a bit about your history with the Spectrum, Mike. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Daly. Um, I, uh, I haven't actually written any commercial stuff on the Spectrum, but I did grow up with them. Um, I started out in the ZX81, and then I got a Spectrum. Uh, there was actually my mother's office one that they bought so I could write them a database that was written in uh, Spectrum Basic, um, which was quite good fun. So I had a Spectrum for about a year or so, learned assembler and stuff and, and got into all the kind of games and, and things with it. Um, I went on from then to the Commodore Plus 4, then the 64, and diverged a little bit from the, the normal Spectrum stuff. But it's always been a, a big draw for me, all of the old games. And we have Philip and Andrew Oliver on the line as well. Hello. Quick introduction. Yes, give us a quick intro and tell, tell us a bit about your history with the Specky. Fine. Well, what I'll do is um, I'll, I'll do half and Andrew can do the other half. Uh, so it's, uh, it's Philip, uh, Oliver. We got into um, computers early, started on uh, a Sinclair ZX81, then moved on to the Dragon 32, then the BBC Micro, then the Amstrad. And so by the time we got to the Spectrum, we actually were very late. Um, and the way we got to Spectrum was that we had a number one bestseller, uh, Super Robin Hood with Codemasters on the Amstrad. And David Darling, uh, we were complaining that it was taking a long time for them to convert to the Spectrum. David Darling sent us a Spectrum in the post, and this must have been um, October 86. 
So really, really late to the spectrum market. And quite frankly, we thought we'd missed it. We knew how huge the spectrum market was. And in the previous years, we were in awe of some of the games on the spectrum and just thought, well, we can't compete with that. Um, but the free spectrum turned up with David Darling saying, could you please convert your own um, game next time if you're going to complain at the people that we get to convert it, um, being slow. So um, it took us about a week to do the first one, and that was Ghost Hunters, which was pretty successful. Had a few problems with it. Um, somebody, whilst we were working on that, had already been engaged to do Super Grand, uh, to, to do Grand Prix Simulator, so we let them crack, crack on with that. But then after that, we decided to convert every single one of our own games. Uh, the next ones up were uh, Pro Ski Simulator and Dizzy, the first of the Dizzies. And at this point, I'll let Andrew take over and carry on the, yeah. list, the list. Yeah, so um, we made quite a lot of Dizzy games. Um, I can't remember exactly how many. Two flavors of Dizzy games. There was the adventure game, six or seven games, like Treasure on Island and Fantasy World and uh, Mystery World and Dizzy Prince of the Yoke. Anyway, um, and then there was some arcade games. Games, uh, fast food and quick snacks, Dizzy Down the Rapids, Bubble Dizzy, uh, probably a couple of others in there. Um, uh, panic Dizzy, there you go. I knew I'd forgotten one. Um, but you know what? We'd go crazy we'd go, if we just were working on Dizzy games. Um, but they were successful, and so we liked doing them. But we alternated them with other games. So we were writing um, various other games, generally for Codemasters, like the sort of BMX simulators and uh, Race Against Time we did for charity, for the Bob Geldof charity. Um, but in amongst all of that, we fitted in a couple of others for Activision. Um, we were never actually employees of Codemasters. Uh, so we did Ghostbusters 2 and Incredible Shrinking Sphere. I'll probably leave it there because I think we've probably taken our slot on our interest. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Well, you guys have all got you know incredible histories with the Spectrum, but the reason we're talking today is because there is a new version of the Spectrum, um, the ZX Spectrum Next. Now, now, Jim, you've been involved since very early in this project. I mean, you, you're probably well-placed to tell us what the, what the concept is behind the Spectrum yeah. Next. Yeah, basically it's a FPGA clone of the Spectrum, but um, a next version of it with like a redesigned keyboard by the legendary Rick Dickinson, who did the original. So, and it looks amazing, as you probably know already. And um, I met Enrique, uh, the main guy who'd funded it, like basically until we got to the Kickstarter when we needed the the big cash for the the mold. I met Enrique about a year ago. Uh, play Blackpool. Basically, I was doing a talk about the games I'd done, and he was doing a talk after me. Obviously, he introduced the Spectrum Next, which was great. So, after, at the end of his uh, talk, he said, are there any questions? So, I put my hand up and said, where can I get a dev kit? The rest is history. I started adding, um, I was the only person who actually, out of the dev teams that had been given a board, I was the only person who thought, well, this is a next version of the Spectrum. And it's touted as the Spectrum Next. So I thought, well, what would be the next iteration? I thought, well, a lot of the games, I'd, a lot of the machines that were coming out after, like the Amiga and Master Systems, Mega Drives, SNESs, NESs and stuff, they all had sprites. So I thought, well, if we had sprites to it, it would make it easier for beginners to get things moving around on the screen and being able to program, make game themselves basically because a lot of the times when people come up to me at the shows and they say i want to make a game for the spectrum how do you get something moving around on the screen it's like well it's not that easy for a beginner you know you've got to know a bit of machine code because basically it's really fast enough um 
move things around in pixels, it gets really intricate. So I thought, well, if, if we add hardware sprites and hardware scrolling, then it would be easier for more people to get into it. Well, when the Kickstarter did go live, absolutely smashed its goals. I mean, were you expecting such a big response? No, we, we were quite shocked, really. Because of the timing of it, it was um, around the time of people were being by another Kickstarter. So we thought it, to get the 250k that was set as the target, we, we had um, like a little chat about whether we'd actually get it or not. And we, we all said that there's no way we're going to get it. If the only chance that we'll d- get it is if it's you know, the last stretch where it's the last couple of days, we'd ask a, like a, another push. And um, within 33 hours, it had like, smashed through the 250K and it just didn't stop. It was great. It was the, um, the whole thing was like mental because my phone was nonstop vibrating and buzzing and the notifications were interrupting notifications. It was just constantly buzzing with all the updates. It was great. Well, Mike, how did you get involved with the next? Um, I just saw on the Kickstarter, uh, somebody had pointed me to the page um, and then when I was reading through it, and saw all the new toys, you know, they had Harbour Sprite and they had videos of games running twice the speed. Um, it was just really interesting. Um, anything that's kind of that era, I've got a big draw towards. Um, and like I said, I did used to have a Spectre, I never got to really use it properly. So with an old machine with new toys, that that's always going to pull me in. Uh, so it was really just sign up with a Kickstarter um, and then just sit and drool over all this, the, the stuff that was coming out with it. Well, the Olivers, uh, what appeals to you about the machine? Well, what happened, I mean, it was kind of coincidental, really. Um, last Easter, um, day before Easter, um, I had a, um, a Facebook message from some uh, Russians basically saying, it was Dmitry, uh, and he was saying, um, tomorrow morning I'm launching a new Disney game, new uh, Crystal Kingdom Dizzy version, um, and I just thought, yeah, yeah, fine. So I said, okay, good luck, right, great. Um, there's quite a lot of people who write Dizzy fan games, but uh, Easter morning, I noticed quite a lot of buzz about it, and actually, it was incredibly good. So on the um, sort of when we're back at work, and I work with Andrew still, he, even after all these years, we were just chatting about it and how amazing it was, what power they'd got out of the spectrum, and and what a good job they'd done of it, and we were sort of saying that. God, we could almost do a design, uh, design a game for them, um, and they could program it, and that would be quite cool. But then a few days later, Andrew was with Henry. Can I let you carry on, Andrew? This Kickstarter had just launched uh, was looking incredibly good and lots of activity, and people talking about sort of obviously it emulates all the old games, so people will be able to play all your old games. But they're adding these features, so people will be writing new games. Um, and the joke being, oh, you could write a new Dizzy game. We're thinking, you know what? We actually tried a few years ago to sort of bring back Dizzy, um, doing our own Kickstarter. But to make a modern, modern sort of console game would cost millions. Um, and we don't believe there's quite the audience for Dizzy. We'd like to think there's a fond memory for Dizzy, but not quite. Um, and we were going to tackle it in a sort of stylized two and a half day, but it was still going to cost a fair bit and we didn't manage to get our Kickstarter. But we were always saying, well, Dizzy's about the story and people remember it in these retro ways. And actually, we could make a Dizzy game like the old Dizzy games, but with a full new story. Um, But how would you bring that out? Because we were talking then um, about, like, would you bring it out on a, a PS Vita or an iPhone and stuff like that? But then this opportunity along with, with the Spectrum, and we were saying, well, 
actually, maybe that's the best place for it. If we wanted to do another Disney game, and we kind of would like to, we'll scope it and then keep it to the size of running on a spectrum. And with these new guys that uh, Philip had uh, got in contact with, what they had done is from looking at the game, they'd recreated a better version of it. So they were entirely capable of doing the, the graphics and the coding and the editor, the map editor and things, which is actually what we were sort of slightly worried about, it, like getting all that stuff back together. We said we can easily design a game, but it's like recoding it, ooh, that's a bit hard. So that's when we uh, just started talk, talking and sort of joining all the dots. Well, Mike, uh, I was wondering how does it improve on the original specs and what are those kind of specs that make you completely drool? And just think, oh my God, this is amazing. Well, I mean, I used to like the original machine because it was just a CPU and a screen. So there was always just trying to make it go as fast as possible. And that was the old ways. You still had this with the new machine. The double speed was really nice. But then once you start getting hardware sprites, it starts to get more interesting because you can start to do lots of tricks. Coming from the 64, it was all about hardware and sprites and character maps and stuff. Um, You kind of learn a lot of tricks to to do different things and it takes away the bulk of the problem that you had on the spectrum which was just trying to draw moving objects which means that you can spend more time on scrolling more time on a little bit of processing and effects and things so even with the sprites because this was before all the other toys got added it was suddenly that much more interesting to just you know you could just push it that much more further um, it got rid of all the kind of color clash that you would get with games as characters walked about um, I've always liked the really bright colours that you've had uh, and the high res. I've never thought the blocky, you know, two-colour thing was particularly bad. It was just the sprites moved across. Coming from the 64, it was kind of, meh, it'd be a bit nicer if. And then all of a sudden, that you've got that. So, you know, right at the start, just the speed and just the hardware sprites was great. And then you obviously had this Raspberry Pi edition as well for uh, a turbo. Now, if back in the day... You could buy an accelerator that would speed up your machine by hundreds of times for a fiver. Everybody would have had one. So I've always thought that even though people are buying it without, if somebody starts making use of it, you know, it's a fiver. It's not going to cost. They'll just buy one because it's such an easy kind of thing to add. Um, so it was just so many toys coming with it and still programming in, you know, an older language, Z80. With, uh, Z80. It's just it's such good fun. I mean, is there a bit of a divide with, like, the purists? Because I know some people love, like, the colour clashing on the spectrum. They think it'd be, like, you know, scandalous to take it out. I mean, I obviously played the games early on, and I still quite like them, but having touched so many machines, um, I'm not really, you know, interested in preserving the spectrum, like, as it was. If you want a spectrum, there's millions out there, go and buy one. There's no worries that, you know, you, you can't get it anymore. There's lots of kind of clones of them now as well that can hook up to HDMI. So I was really interested in something, a spectrum and a little bit, which is what this started out as. Um, you know, it, I just I don't see the real problem of enhancing things. Even all the newer ones that people have been using, like the ZX Uno and stuff, they've added to it. And some people have done demos and stuff. Um, and even back in the 90s, you got um, add-ons to do all the DMA things and, and do more effects and sound. So... All these machines have always had little add-ons to it. So I've never seen the real problem of just giving it some more, particularly now with the kind of newer um, power that we've got in machines. Well, Jim, how compatible is it with old Spectrum hardware? Like, can you use tape cassettes, for example? 
Yeah, it's still got the uh, the jack, the stereo jack, and then you have a splitter and to plug it into the mic and the headphones on this cassette player. So yeah, it it's it should be compatible with everything. Well, I need a cassette player that still works might be an issue. Yeah. <laughs> Someone posted on the Facebook group that they are still for sale as well. So oh, really, what about yeah. like the add-ons? Like I remember they had the uh, Spec Drum, which was a little drum machine, and, and stuff. the printer. Yeah, the, the Spectrum's printer. built in. We've added that. I think Vic, Victor said everything that we tested it with works. So. I'd like to say 100%, but you never know. There might be something there. But it, basically, most things, if not all, of the interfaces that you could plug into it should still work. Well, I know one of the challenges with making like new classic hardware is often the branding. I mean, were there any, any issues getting the Spectrum branding? And who actually owns that today? Um, it's owned by B-Sky-B, I think. Oh, that's where I, I believe that's true, yeah. I believe, yeah. And um, so enrique just went to them and said don't you mind if we can we use the branding and he said as long as you donate so much money to charity so that was done to a charity so a charity has benefited yeah. somewhere yeah which is good has uh, clive sinclair seen the project and do you know what he thinks about it i don't know i'm not sure it'd be nice to to get some feedback from him well philip and andrew i mean you know from your perspective why do you think there was a need for new hardware instead of, like, emulation, for example? Um, there's a, a hell of a nostalgia um, for that era. Um, and emulating just doesn't recapture the, the nostalgic angle. It's just, oh, I've got a very powerful PC and look, I can kind of run an old game. But it does, it's not the same. I mean, physically, it's not the same as, as the old ones. And although this is a new um, case and everything, it embodies the the spirit of the original spectrum hardware people want to sort of know that they've got the machine and if they wanted they could sort of load all cassettes and play it the way they used to play it unfortunately they now have some big new flat green hdmi that the old spectrum probably wouldn't actually work but as philip says the idea of just picking up an emulator on a pc it doesn't feel the same i mean i've done it many a time in many many of these things and uh I don't know, like trying to play, I don't know, supposing, I shouldn't say this, but it's like Nintendo 64, you, like I played um, GoldenEye on a PC emulator, and it's just not the same as actually looking at it on a Wii on Nintendo 64, and people go, but it's the same game. It's like, no, it feels different, and it feels different to sit at a Spectrum with a Spectrum sort of little keyboard and little machine plugged in your TV, and, and people want to recreate that, um, and that's what it does, and it does it really well, so it recreates and plays all the old games, and there's a sort of excitement and a hobby attitude of like there'll be new games coming out and it should be fairly easy to actually have a go at making your own you can't do that on on modern consoles and you you can't just suddenly make a playstation 4 game it's just not going to ever happen and even trying to make something like a little iphone game it's it's different it's it's entirely different thing there was a great hobby market around things like the Spectrum because they were actually quite easy to write a little bit of code. Um, I was in a museum um, last week and I was a little bit bored and I just like, like line 10, print hello world, line 20, go to 10, oh look. And then I just, before, within a few minutes, I was like random line generator, like flashing lines around the screen and going, oh, I remember all this. It was just like, but, but I was creating stuff within a few minutes. You can't do that with anything else. It's amazing how that simple command is uh, kind of in mainstream culture as yeah. well. You know, <laughs> a lot of people kind of talk about how they go on a spectrum, still do that, and 
reprint their name a thousand times. You know, it's like built into the psyche. Yeah, um, it's just so so very simple. Um, Approachable. You are at yeah. You actually are programming and it's doing it, and you realise that those games on the spectrum and stuff. The, the people who actually wrote the games, like ourselves, pretty much had the same tools at their fingertips. Uh, there was no massive magic, massive budgets, massive teams, or anything like that, or licensed in middleware and all this. They just had exactly the same. We just played around with it more and more and more. <laughs> Well, Jim, who would you say the next is aimed at then? Is it like long-time fans or is it like is there a new audience interested in it too? Um, it's a bit of both really because there's a lot of like younger people that are quite interested as well. Um, a lot of uh, the original fans are going to be showing their kids it and hopefully they'll pick things up and either play games or hopefully make games. So it's aimed at well, anyone who want, wants to to use it, I suppose. I have to say, with the next generation, I genuinely and, and truly believe that it will encourage some young hobbyists to get into it. And I really hope that yeah. they then take a similar path to, to all of us on the call and actually end up learning um, how to code and code really well and then get great careers in, in the games industry. Um, it is a good routine. Um, yeah. And it's um, <laughs> it would be lovely that if we can recreate that, which I think that is sort of an ambition of this project as well. Well, I think Mike made a good well, point before about the fact that, you, you know, you turn the spectrum on and you, you would dump straight into BASIC, weren't you? And, and you had to learn how to code really to use a machine, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it was... All, all the machines of that era were just kind of started up and were kind of ready to use. Um, and, you know, you had to... You got the manual out and you had to figure your way around using commands. And that kind of got rid of the fear of the different things you had to type in, whereas these days, if you can't click on it, then you're not quite sure what to do. So it's it's always a good thing to, you know, be forced to use the keyboard, even a little bit. Um, and I think as soon as you've done that, then, you know, putting in this 10, print, 20, go to 10 thing isn't a big leap from that. And then once you've got that, you've done your first program and you think, hey, this is quite easy and off you go kind of thing. One of the things is you're comp- you have the power of the whole computer at your fingertips um, and you don't need to understand all the complexity of modern computers. Modern computers have so much stuff in that it's bewildering, whereas actually you've got a lump of memory and you can type commands and you can sort of do anything on the processor. It's all a little bit slow and a little bit basic, but it's extremely approachable, whereas nowadays you couldn't... It's like... I don't know, you've got a multi-core processor, you've got the CPU, you've got your GPU, uh, different A million libraries. <laughs> yeah, it's just like there's too many things and the only way you're going to program is to use all these libraries and middleware and everything else. And then, then you feel that you're not really controlling the computer. You are getting it to do stuff, but on something like a Spectrum, it's it's raw. You're, it's, it, if it does it, it's because you did it. And it's kind of, you can completely understand it. Um, which is, I just think it's a sort of raw, raw thing that is really nice to yeah, I mean, feel. That these days you just don't get to control a whole machine. You get to basically tell her what to do a little bit, but you can't take it over. You can't make it do, you know, and stretch it and push it to the maximum. Um, very much there's, there's always an operating system under there. There's always a bit of processor power being sucked away for something else. So it's great to be able to take over it and just, you know, use all of it. 
Uh, Jim, do you think it's great that it's kind of a British computer and, you know, the latest generation, they've probably seen a lot of machines that aren't coming from the UK. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's nice made in Britain. Well, yeah, the bad weather uh, keeps you in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 was th- I was thinking, I mean, how big was the spectrum overseas? Because I know Ravi and I, before, were talking about these weird kind of Soviet clones that we, we saw like a few of, and there's a Timex in America. I mean, what was it? did the spectrum have much of a following outside of the UK? In, in Russia, the Spectrum clones were massive. I believe there were yeah. 22 clones altogether. Oh, yeah. And um, somebody from the IT Museum in Ukraine um, got in touch with me and Andrew a couple of years ago, um, uh, because just because you can on Facebook and stuff. And they were actually saying um, how massive uh, the Spectrum was in Russia um, and how they all loved Dizzy, uh, which is very nice to hear. Um but, yeah, but they did come um, years later. It was very easy to du- to duplicate um, all the cassettes themselves. Um, so, yeah, we never saw any royalties, but that's fine. I don't care. Uh, but um, it was they, they got all their clone machines, and then they were able to just kind of copy tapes. And that's what they did. And so there was a huge... Um, following of the the spectrum um, from from Russia and places like Poland they love their video games and again they all started with um, the spectrum as well or clones yeah spectrum but clones. These, yeah that's right I was going to say these Thank things you. all came later so it, the sort of mid 80s it was very much a UK machine and it went a little bit across Europe I know it was quite popular in Spain, Spain. and Italy yeah. um, I, I know that it was very popular there but it didn't take off that strong um you've got to remember uh, it's like you kind of got to understand english to sort of understand the manual and type in basic so that was that does hold you back if, if english isn't your first language but then a few years in and people were starting to sort of uh like create manuals and stuff in the other foreign languages which suddenly got other people sort of at, at least using them but they were always slight it's slightly difficult because fundamentally very much like english well, the first time we saw the next, I think it was you showed us it, Jim. I think at Play Expo either Manchester or Blackpool a couple of years ago now, yeah. and you, you hooked up this amazing demo where you're running like a movie from an SD card. I mean, yeah. what are like the most impressive that was Manchester, things? Wasn't it? Like, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what are the most impressive things either you've made the next do or that you've seen other people do, Jim? Well, Mike's done Lemmings. I mean, <laughs> you can't get more impressive than that. That's an amazing feat in itself. The games that some people have been doing has been great. Uh, they, they look fantastic. Um, and yet, for me, the, still, I know some people, the, the extremists are like, but it's not as specky. But for me, I think because the aspect ratio is still 256 by 192, but the resolution is still 256 by 192, it keeps that the spirit of the, the spectrum in it. And because it's programmed, well, the, the games have been programmed by like programmers from back in the day as well it sort of keeps that the feel of how the games flowed back in the day so you get you get that playability in there as well which is what the spectrum was most known for as well well, I know, uh, Philip, you've, you've got to leave to uh, head off to an event in a moment, so we'll quickly talk I about do. this before you have to go, because talking about big new titles for the Spectrum next, Dizzy recently celebrated his 30th birthday, and you're actually making a new Dizzy game for the Spectrum next. I know we did get a look at a Play Expo in Blackpool. Tell us about Wonderful Dizzy. 
So, um, as that um, a nice uh, happy coincidence happened of the guys, uh, Dimitri and Eugenie um, in Russia um, with Air Crystal Kingdom Dizzy and then the opportunity of the Spectrum Next, we, we said, well, this is the time to sort of make a new Dizzy game if we're going to. But it was then, well, okay, if we are going to, we've got to design it. Um, but where do you start? What's the design? So, we were just having a chat during the day, just at work, um, saying, well, the theme that we really loved was kind of looking back at classic old fairy tales and sort of saying, or oh, can we kind of use any ideas and do a mashup of all of all of those? Um, and it was almost by coincidence. I went home that night and I just couldn't sleep. And um, I was just kind of going through in my head, well, like, well, what stories, what classic stories are there that are out there that would kind of fit really well? And they were just going through my head, going through my head. And suddenly I hit on Wizard of Oz and it just suddenly all dropped into place that you have all of those um, interesting characters and obviously in Wizard of Oz it's Dorothy going out there to solve all their problems um, and then try and get home and in our case it would be Dizzy solving all the same problems and trying to get home and we've also had this um, spirit in Dizzy of the yoke folk taking on kind of different characters and different personalities, which is exactly the fundamental principle of the Wizard of Oz story, that actually they're all characters that Dorothy knew from her farmland and from back home in Kansas, um, but they were recast as really interesting characters who had issues and problems and needed help. Um, it's just like, it, it's it's dizzy. It's like, oh my God, it's dizzy. Uh, it's so easy to go and cast sort of the, the characters sort of as uh, Dozy as a scarecrow, um, Denzel as the Tin Man and the uh, the Lion. Um, and then you've got the witches and we've got Daisy and Dora as the witches. And then we had Zax. Now, obviously, um, you've got the Wicked Witch of the East who gets squashed in the first scene of the, the book and the film. Um so we don't have to worry about who she was because, of course, we don't have a character for her, but that's all right. She died in the first scene, so that's, that's cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we needed a, a Witch of the West, um, but we've we've always had a wizard. So we just said, well, it's fine. We'll have a Witch of the West, and it will look a little bit like Zack's um, sort of recast. Um, and then you can kind of also play on lots of jokes because one of the things that we're trying to do with this game is kind of capture the nostalgia of the 80s and the technology so there's actually quite a few jokes in there about the 80s and about the technology and about the spectrum and stuff um, i don't want to ruin it all and give away some of the gags but looking back on it you can kind of you can make in jokes and laugh about some of the stuff we had we had back in the 80s uh it's 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 a wonderful creative experience to be able to sort of go back and uh, sort of do a new Dizzy design um, after so long. And Philip's been um, designing a lot of the, the maps and the puzzles exactly the way we used to do it. He's sort of like hand-drawing it all and stuff. The only difference is that sort of when he gives it to me, um, I'm sort of like scanning them, putting them in a computer and using Excel and um, Google Docs as a sort of combined document to sort of fill in all the gaps and um, make sure that all the story and, and things flow. Um, but, I mean, people like familiarity, but then they don't like what they've sort of had before. Um, and we found this idea... It's it's a little panto as well. It's like when you go to pantomime, which is a very British thing, and the Carry On uh, series used to do this, is you take a very familiar concept that everybody knows, and then you 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 tell stories around the familiar things. The people who have done it best in recent years was obviously Shrek. So people say sort of like, that seems pretty popular. Everybody knows the characters. Everyone knows the... Um, 
the situations, but they don't know this particular way in which it's told, and it's told um, very, very tongue-in-cheek, um, which is actually what you want to do. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, it's going really well, the design. Um, yeah. And, and the programming is making good good progress as well. Eugenie um, is doing a great job. And, uh, yeah, we've, three, great we've got Gerard doing all the sprites, um, Gerard Bentley doing all the sprites. Um, it's all coming together really well. well when's the game going to be out then? Ooh, I don't like to put, we, we don't like to put time pressure on people. Um, partly because everyone's doing it as a hobby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everybody's doing it as a hobby. Kind of no money's changing hands or whatever. Um, but also, um, if they go too fast, they might get ahead of me on the script because I've still got some script lines to do, which I haven't <laughs> done yet. Um, so, but I reckon two or three months and they'll be pretty much done. Um, I would guess. And is that an exclusive to the next? Well, um, initially, the plan was to sort of, um, we would do this if the next, if the next is successful, uh, the next was successful, so that kind of committed us, and that was a little bit, little bit of a, oh, God, what have we signed up for now? Um, what have we committed ourselves to? Um, we are going to uh, make sure that there are lots of next um, features in there. Uh, but also there, there is a sort of a part of us that uh, wants to see what could we've got out of the original spectrum. So there's going to be a mode that works. So it's going to be a mode in there, which is classic spectrum mode. And then there's going to be enhanced next versions. As for exclusive, um, it'll be interesting to see because, you see, the thing is everybody's always asked us, would you sort of design a new Disney game? Would you bring it back? Um, and, and recently people said, well, would you do a Switch version? Would you do this version? So I don't want to ever say that we won't. At this point in time, no plans, but I don't want to say never. Um, because actually, I have to say, how cool would it be to have wonderful Dizzy on the Switch or something with the amazing graphics that that's capable of? Okay. So I don't want to say never. At this point in time, there are no plans. Well, Philip, I know you have to get off to this event. Thank you so much for joining yes, us. Um, and we can't wait to see wonderful Dizzy. You're to hang around for a bit, Andrew? Um, I guess I can for a little while. Excellent. Yes. We've got a few more minutes. Thank, well, thank, thank you very, very much, much, Philip. See you Enjoy. later. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 We did mention in there as well about your um, your Lemmings demo, Mike. Um, so tell us a bit about this. You managed to get how many Lemmings on screen? Uh, well, the original goal when uh, I, I started was to see if it was possible to get the full 100 on, because that was always the uh, the big thing with the Amiga. We kind of tried to push it, and that was about as much as we could get on the Amiga. So with the extra speed, um, initially it was going to go up to 28 megahertz. So with the extra speed, I thought, well, you might just be able to cope with it. Um, it's since dropped down to 14, but I've still managed to get the full 100 um, with the objects and level all being kind of drawn. So technically, that's the complicated bit, getting that drawing and, and running at the right speed. Um, so that was an interesting challenge. Um, you never would have managed it on a, a normal machine. It's using about 128K of raw code um, which, you know, obviously that just would have filled the machine before, never mind the graphics. Um, so it's been interesting, yes. Well, you did that, um, the C-Spec emulator. I mean, is that helping people with development? Um, well, I originally did that because when I first started um, getting interested in it, um, obviously Jim had one of the early boards, and there was a couple of um, folk that, were kind of posting things, and Victor, who's, who was writing all the hardware parts, um, was kind of posting updates, and I was getting awful jealous of all these these guys being able to to write. I think Jim was doing his um, Baggers on Ladders game, yeah. and I, I was wanting to have a play as well. So I already had a Spectrum emulator that I wrote in the oh, late 90s, 
um, that I actually ported to Dreamcast and PS2 and stuff. So because there wasn't that much hardware extra on um, the next at that point, I thought, oh, I could put some sprites in it. I could have a little play. Um, I was very much focused on making a dev tool rather than a, a full-blown emulator. So basically just like a 40K machine with the extra hardware in it so I could play. Um, and then when I started to, to do bits with it, um, Jim was at the point where he was having, you were having to carry your machine back and forward to work for lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's going, can, can yeah. I get that? That would save me a little yeah. bit. Yeah. C- can I just add it? The C-Spec has been a lifesaver. It has been so helpful throughout development. Um, still use it now. Uh, quite a few people use it. Um, like I said, it's just sped things up so much and saves me carrying the next around. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was basically to do that, is to try and get the you know, fast dev turnaround. Um, so it, it's grown over time as the hardware's come in. As, as Victor's been adding stuff, then I've been putting it into C-Spec to be able to test it. So he has, then has demos to then test on the hardware as well. Um, so I think the, the Layer 2 and the low-res stuff, um, we did some demos using C-Spec, gave him yeah. some um, snapshots over that he could then run and make sure the actual hardware worked. So it's been quite nice for that as well. How important uh, was Jonathan Cordwell's arcade game designer? Has that kind of helped speed up development as well? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of people using AG, AGD for the Spectrum, mostly the original Spectrum. And hopefully when, when he's converted it for the next, it'll, and when the next is out, People will take that on, and, and there's a shed load of demos that the guys on the AGD forums have been making. So as soon as you get it, you'll be able to have lots of stuff to test out and play and learn and hopefully make a load of games. One thing I wondered is, can any of the classic Spectrum software see any improvements by using Next Hardware? If you've still got the source and you can change <laughs> them, then yeah. But um, <laughs> otherwise, you'd have to hack into them and change things to you know, change routines to make it draw sprites with the hardware or whatever. So yeah, I mean, you you, you could like say just get the the assembly, you know, the the snapshot, um, poke into it wherever there's a call to draw a sprite, change that to use a hardware sprite if you want. But that's a fairly large undertaking. It sounds it, it, easy, but it is, isn't it? Be quite complicated. It's not as easy as just doing it. Yeah. Well, Andrew, how do you find kind of developing for the next compared to the original machine? What What's the easier process, is it? I mean, we're just designing the game on paper and working with these other guys. Um, and they're using emulators um, at this point. Um, I think hardware is just being sent to them so we're not doing it ourselves but the problem is that our tools that we were using to write all those original dizzy games on the spectrum were all via the amstrad um we had a cpc 6128 the disk drive one with a maxam rom rom um chip in the back for the compiler and then we'd strung that to the back of a spectrum with um a, a piece of uh, electronics that a friend made which is sort of breadboard with solder wires and all sorts of stuff. We do have all the stuff, but to try to sort of get that um, development environment up and running again would just be really hard. So it's not something that um, we could recreate what we used to have easily. 
and we're not actually coding it this time around. So, um, yeah, can't really answer that. <laughs> you haven't got to use a serial cable in your Amstrad anymore, though. No, we do have all this stuff. I mean, um, yeah, we're like dizzy. We we collect everything. Um, it's uh, it's currently in a museum. Actually, all of our all of our stuff is in Trowbridge Museum, which is actually um, where we grew up. It's near Bath, um, and it. They said, could they do a little ex- exhibition of all of our games and stuff? And it's like, and uh, Philip said, yeah. Well, actually, it's Philip's wife said, yeah, you can empty the flipping loft. Because it was at the, um, the National Video Game Arcade in Nottingham, quite a lot of stuff. But actually, more stuff is at this other museum. We're going to end up with this sort of traveling games museum. It's got like all the old computers. And um, yeah, it's quite fun. As, as that's the museum I was at when I was just like, idle with an Amstrad and uh, Spectrum just typing things Um, yeah um, it's it's fun what you do do. well here's a question it would be quite nice to get all of your answers to Um, we'll start with with you Mike actually what would you like to see people doing on the Spectrum next I think more of the kind of classic looking games but using the sprites to kind of help accentuate them a little bit Um, so still you kind of platformers and shooters because it's still the kind of old school gameplay. Um, but then at the moment, most folk are concentrating on doing 256 color stuff and whatnot. I mean, even I'm doing that. But I would quite like to do and see more games that are that look visually like the original, but then sprites to get rid of things like color clash and stuff. And then using like the layer two to to do some effects or whatnot. So Basically, just push the machine in a slightly different direction instead of going towards what it looks like just now, which is just, oh, we can kind of beat Amiga stuff. I mean, I'm guilty of that as well. You know, the, a lot of the stuff I've been doing is just, well, the Amiga did this, I could do this too. Um, but I think if I was starting an actual dedicated game, I would probably try and do something that's the, more like the original high res, blocky colors, then use the sprites to kind of give just a more enhanced feel to things. So it, it felt like a, a Spectrum Plus a little bit, I think, because I really liked the look of the original games. I mean, able to get rid of Color Clash and use the Layer 2 to do scrolling and stuff would be nice. But you can still use Layer 2 and have it look like the Spectrum. So I think I would quite like to see more of that. What would you like to see, Jim? Um, yeah, I'd like to see people making games and demos and the again like mike um wanting to do use the original specky palace of the original 16 or well, 15 colors because the black was the same black on it um using the original 15 colors but having each pixel a different color no having the ability to have each pixel a different color so you, you remove the the color clash but you still have the look of the original. What about you, Andrew? Anything you'd like to see on the next? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that as we've jumped from generation to generation, there's games that come out on a generation and you sort of look at it and think, well, hang on, this game could have existed sort of like years ago and like how sort of interesting would it have been had you sort of worked it out before? Um, I'm trying to think of some good examples. I mean, people will sort of, I don't know, they might write Angry Birds or something like on the spectrum next and you go, yeah, actually, that game could have probably been created pretty nicely on a spectrum. And I think things like that are sort of wacky and I think people will end up doing that. But then that's not original. That's just to say... 
look what I've managed to achieve. I've, I've achieved a relatively modern game, but on something, and it could have been, that game could have come out in the 80s. I think that's kind of an interesting thing. But one of the things that um, I'd like to see is people just going back and, and being creative, but not being scared by the fact that they have to have sort of art production skills in order to make a game that is worthy and respected for its creativity. Because everyone knows, look, there's a certain limitation here. Um, it's like when you, anyone can write a book, um, but then it takes just a better imagination to write something like a Harry Potter as opposed to someone's school essay. It just takes time and effort, but like, but it's, it's your imagination. Um, whereas I do know that like you thinking, well, if I was to do it on something else, I, I, uh, I'd need to be really good at, really good at art. And obviously we weren't very good at art. Um, like, but the spectrum was about the level we could draw. (laughs) So I'd like to see people take certain games. I mean, something like a Minecraft in some ways you can see that that feels like a sort of slightly dated product. I mean, but somebody comes up with an idea that just works really well for that hardware. And you're thinking that's absolutely incredible. And they haven't been scared and put off by other things. Well, Jim, I know developers have had the boards for a while now and uh, Kickstarter backers yeah. have started to receive them as well. When can we actually go on the website and just buy one then? I don't know yet. Uh, it depends on how we can, well, Enrique can organise something with resellers because the way it works is we need to do it in bulk to to get the order, well to get it the bits cheap enough to be able to get it down to that price to then sell on to to the people. So like you'd have to get a reseller to buy about two hundred or so at a time to get to a point where it's you know cheap enough for the parts to make out uh, to get it out at a reasonable price. I know, obviously, judging by all the hype that's been online, I mean, it's, um, I know what a massive interest there is in this project, and you've definitely sold at Um, least two Spectrum Necks in the studio tonight. Yeah, (laughs) cool. Yeah, we know that there is interest, because there's lots of people that want them, and they held back on the Kickstarter, and and then it was too late after, once once it finished. There's a few resellers that are interested, it's just whether we can organise, well, whether Enrique can organise, um, how to do it that makes it good for the purchaser. Well, I think having too much demand is not a bad thing at all, is it? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. Well, the thing is, if the more we se- the more we sell, the more people have them, which means the developers who are, are making games for it will, if they if they want to get paid for it, they'll be able to get paid for it and then continue making games for it because there'll be more units out there for them to sell. So. It would be nice if we could restart the industry. <laughs> well, but, uh, what I'd like to see is um, some sort of like school clubs and, and hobby clubs yeah. sort of based around this. Um, and even like game jams, like um, it would be, that that would be a really nice thing to sort of be able to do, a sort of Spectrum Next game jam. Um, yeah. People would be happy to sort of travel to that and spend a weekend all working together and getting something out. And it will feel like a proper full game that they've done funny you mentioned the game jam thing because andy spencer over at, um, at, at the awesome arcade club best place in the world ever um 
absolutely love that place. He's he's ordered from the Kickstarter. I think it was three or four. I think it was three, and um, he's going to have them at the arcade club and organise like uh, get-togethers, like programming evenings for people to come in and and make games and stuff. So that's like, in Manchester, isn't it? Barry, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I think, you know, the, the more people that get their hands on the Spectrum Next, the more exciting things we're going to see. You know, we think it's such an interesting project. And it's been amazing having you guys on as well and the fact that you guys are involved as well. So, Jim, Andrew, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. And we can't wait to Very see much. what you do. Cool. Thank you. Cool. Thank you.